The best vision is insight. Here's what I'd love for you to do this morning as we work through John chapter 9. And that is if you would consider reading and seeing John chapter 9 as an eye exam. All right? However, not an eye exam for your physical eye, not one that's going to detect abnormalities or problems that are going to impair your physical vision. But let's look at this as a way of determining and maybe assessing problems that obstruct our spiritual vision. All right? So if you'll do that with me. Here's the chart. Here's what it's going to look like. Uh, It's going to be in four quadrants. So as you hear John chapter 9 and as you experience John chapter 9, if you would simply think about it through these lenses. What do you see in Jesus? What do you see in the man? What do you see in the man's parents? And what do you see in the Pharisees? And keep in mind, each one of these quadrants, each one of these voices, people, represents a different narrative, a different unique experience in life. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we we simply say thank you. We approach you with gratitude on behalf of just each and every heart in this room. Father, even with the things that we have mentioned this morning with different brothers and sisters and the things that they are navigating through. May your presence be known. May your presence be felt. Whether it be in Cuba, the Philippines, right here in Centennial Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Father, be with us as we experience your word today and as we experience your son Jesus through this text. We continue to look at the way that your son moves throughout this world. And as a result, how we move in our own lives because of him. Thank you for your son Jesus. And it's in his name and through the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. You and I, we, are storied creatures. Storied creatures. We are people who live by stories. In fact, they are stories that are told to us by our parents, and they help interpret how we see, uh, how we understand life, and how we understand how life ought to be. And so you have family narratives. You have Religious narratives. You have cultural narratives. And might also consider this. They're not always healthy. And they're not always true. But they do exist in one way or another. And they inform our journeys. So hear that again. Just take that in and consider the fact that you and I are storied creatures. Our stories and our narratives are what help us make sense out of the world and out of our experiences. And they are experiences that are told to us, again, by either um, religious narratives or family narratives, cultural narratives. It goes on and on. And they inform our journeys. In other words, you and I, quite frankly, are shaped by these stories. So think about that for your own life. Think about the narratives that have shaped your life and how you see and experience the world. And consider this. Once these stories and narratives are embedded 
or stored in our minds, we go throughout life having them mostly unchallenged or uncontested. And I'll say this. They literally have the ability to either run your life or ruin your life. These narratives. Let me give you just a few examples. So, um, and and they'll they'll range from humorous to quite serious, okay? Um, I don't know how many of you still watch or if it's even still on. You remember the show, uh, reality TV show, American Idol? Yes? My favorite part of that show is watching the blooper reel to begin with, right? The auditions of the people who don't go for it. And if you're one of those people, I, I apologize. I'm not making light of you. I am saying this, someone in those people's lives said to them from the very beginning, no, 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 you have what it takes. You can make it big. You're going to go all the way. And, and then you wonder, someone's been telling them lies for a long time, right? There's this narrative that they've been living into, okay? That's a silly one. Um, maybe it has to do with marriage. Not so silly. In premarital counseling, we spend a lot of time talking about family of origin. Because those who are engaged in marriage learn a lot about what it means to be a husband or a wife or a child or roles and responsibilities based on the home that they grew up in. And those narratives shape those roles. You think back to Matthew chapter 28. Note one more example. The day, literally the day, Jesus has now been resurrected. And and in order to throw a kink in this entire thing, the chief priest... Um, gave guards and, uh, a lot of money, a large amount of money, Matthew 28 says, to actually tell people that Jesus was not resurrected and that, in fact, his disciples stole his body. And so they inserted another narrative in the story. In fact, Matthew goes on to say this. The story is widely circulated to this day. So these narratives exist. They affect how we see and view others. They affect how we see and view and experience God and how we understand relationships. We are storied creatures. Scene one, if you don't mind. The disciples, their experiences were no different 2,000 plus years ago. I'd love for you just to listen and watch how the narratives in this text shape their experiences. So curious about the man's condition... They turn and look to Jesus and they simply ask, Jesus, who sinned? His parents or this man? And here's a narrative already at the beginning of this text that basically exists to explain cause and effect. Obviously something has happened here. But they can't be faulted. Their inquiry is is rather consistent, certainly with the religious narratives of that day. Uh, certainly taught by some of the rabbis then, uh, not to mention cultural and ancient narratives and beliefs that sin and wrongdoings could actually cause afflictions and problems, physical afflictions specifically. And so obviously there is, there is some correlation between sinfulness and things that happen to us, right? But in their case, and sometimes in our case, God, or little g gods, or fate, if you would, would send punishment like birth defects to humans if they did things wrong. Or, on the other hand, if you please the gods, they're going to reward you. Right? Cause and effect. It's a narrative. So in their minds, sin on behalf of the parents, or get this, the man, while he was still a fetus, did something in the womb To bring blindness on himself. Who sinned? 
his parents, or him. And instead of chastising them, the disciples, regarding their false assumptions that God is actually this angry, cruel God who would do something like this, he challenges their narrative. And he gives them something else to consider. In fact, Jesus just pauses and says this, Neither the man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you hear that? Narrative interrupted, challenged, contested. Jesus says that the man's condition is actually an opportunity for God's glory and work to be revealed in his life. The narrative has been interrupted. So, the light of the world, the sent one, spits in the dirt, makes some mud, rubs it in the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash off in a pool that has no special powers whatsoever. Just like the waters right behind me. There's no special powers in these waters right behind me. Jesus simply says, go to this pool and wash. And he does. And he comes back seeing. Now... His narratives are being completely challenged and interrupted. And moving from a social outcast, begging as a lifestyle, and restricted from even probably entering the temple, the man's life has now been completely altered. And as you can imagine, this might have caused quite a stir. In fact, the text tells us it causes quite a stir. Uh, And here's what I'll say. I hope that you don't hear me being disrespectful to the text. It is really challenging not to see some of the humor that follows. Feel free to chuckle if you feel so deemed. All right? He comes back to the people who are there, neighbors and others, and they say, wait a second. Isn't this the man that used to sit and beg? And some of them go, yes. Yes, it is. Of course it is. And others say, (laughs) no, 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 it's not possible. It's just someone who looks like him. It couldn't possibly be him. It's just someone who looks like him. And it causes such a stir with the neighbors and the people that the man had to step into the conversation and go, yes, it's totally me. I promise it's me. Uh, Stop speculating. It's actually he. I am him. It is me. It's okay. But how? How is it possible? How did it happen? And here's what he says. The man, they called Jesus, made some mud, put it in my eyes, and told me to go wash. So I did. And now I can see. And they said, well, where is this man called Jesus? And imagine him saying, how how should I know? I've never seen the man. Right? He's just seeing for the first time. How is he going to answer that question? He has no idea what Jesus looks like or where he possibly is. The humor is all over the place. Scene two, bewildered, perplexed, and baffled. Aren't those three, if you hear me preach enough, you'll hear me use those three words a lot when it comes to Jesus. Because people are often left baffled and bewildered and perplexed after he has been involved with something. And so people are in search for answers for what took place. So what do they do? They take the man to the Pharisees, the religious elite. Maybe they can shed some light on what has just happened in this circumstance. However, they completely disregard and miss the significance of the miracle that has just taken place. And really quickly, this entire thing, as you might be able to imagine, turns into a debate 
and an interrogation of the man. So rather than celebrating with something rather big that's happened in his life, which, by the way, is not just the recovery of his sight, it's full-blown restoration. I mentioned him being a social outcast. Because of his condition, he's economically affected, he's socially affected, and he's religiously affected. So he is experiencing full restoration. But guess what they want to know? They demand to know who is responsible for this ridiculousness. And they want details about what has happened. So I'm going to have to put in some tone. I have no idea what it sounded like, but can you imagine the interrogation? How, how did you actually receive your sight? You were born blind. How did you receive your sight? I, he put mud in my eyes. I washed and now I can see. And they're all outraged. Not all of them, right? There's some who aren't, if you go back and read the story. But those that were convinced and outraged said, There is no way possible that this man, Jesus, is from God. Matter of fact, if this guy, Jesus, were from God, he would know a couple of things. Number one, you don't heal people on the Sabbath. It's restricted. Come on, people. We don't heal on the Sabbath. It's, it's unheard of, unless, by the way, it's a matter of life and death. We'll talk about that. Second thing, kneading. Kneading is prohibited. So spitting in the dirt to make mud? This is absurd. Who made the mud? Where is this guy? Who made the mud? Who do you say that he is? We need you to identify him. And a man says, I think he's a prophet. So apparently, the man's testimony isn't good enough, so the Pharisees dismiss him, and so who do they summon next? They summon the man's parents. And they begin to interrogate his parents. Is this, is this really your son? The one you say that was born blind and now can see? Yes. Yes, it's our son. He, he was born blind, but we have no idea how it happened or who's responsible for it. If you read beneath the text and you see it plainly in John chapter 9, they are terrified of being associated with anything that has to do with Jesus. Anything that has to do with Jesus and the rejection that they might experience at the hands of the Pharisees. So they put distance between themselves and their son and avoid testifying altogether. In fact, they say this, How should we know? Ask our son. He's of age. Don't ask us. Ask him. Ignorant to their own blindness, they're now angry and calloused. They summon the man back for his second interrogation. And if you read the text, it says, Give glory to God by telling the truth. In other words, if you know what's good for you, you'll tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth now. Because we know that this man is a sinner. And the man replies, I have no idea whether this man is a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. Interrogation is going nowhere. They're simply getting more and more irritated. They simply say, for the last time, what did he do to you with this threatening tone? Tell us how he opened your eyes 
But with growing confidence and courage that you see in this man, he engages them again. I've told you already. And you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do, maybe you want to follow him and become his disciples. And the Pharisees are relentless, right? Their insults increase. And they say it's obvious that you are one of his disciples. But us, we're disciples of Moses. We don't even know where this man comes from. And I hope you're watching the development of this guy and his conversation with them. Because with renewed vision, if you would, new boldness, new spiritual insight, the man responds like this. Now, isn't that remarkable? (laughs) You Pharisees who claim knowledge don't know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. And furthermore, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. And nobody has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. Don't you see, you Pharisees who claim to know and see, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So so certain that they can see, they utterly reject any possibility or suggestion on the contrary and confirm their own darkness. How dare you? You've you've been steeped in sin since your birth, and you dare lecture us. And they kick him out. The very thing his parents and others feared, he's likely banned and excluded. Scene three. Likely recognizing Jesus' voice... And, by the way, seeing Jesus for the first time. Listen to the remainder of this text. This is John 9, 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. I love this. Jesus, full of compassion, says to the unnamed man, you are seeing the Messiah. (laughs) Wrap your mind around the significance of this. He's He's been blind his whole life. He wants to know who this is, and Jesus says, you're seeing him. You are actually seeing the light of the world. You are experiencing the light of the world. You are experiencing and seeing the sent one. This is 2,000 plus years ago. I chuckled with Stan all week long. I really wrestled with this text. And then it dawned on me, the text is the sermon, right? What more would I elaborate on in these 41 verses than just to let you dive into this thing and see what Jesus does for people. The text is the message, but where do you and I come into this? Because we have a cameo, right? We have a cameo. 
And so this, at this point in time, we have to consider why on earth would this particular narrative still be anything that you and I would consider? And so here's what I would love for you to do. Simply think back and ask yourself, do you remember the eye exam from the very beginning just a few minutes ago? Just a few minutes ago. You have four quadrants. What did you see in Jesus? What did you see in the man? What do you see in the man's parents? And what do you see in the Pharisees? And let me just ask you the question I've been asking for several, several times now, and that is, what kind of people are we becoming? What kind of person are you becoming? What kind of person am I becoming because of Jesus? And not just that, what kind of stories and narratives are we living into and passing along to others as a result of who it is that we are becoming? Are we becoming more like Jesus? Compassionate, intentional, and aware of the opportunities for God's glory to be revealed, living as light in this world, especially when it comes to people. I love that Philippians chapter 2 tells us, or at least encourages us, shine like stars in a dark world. Be light. So are we becoming more like Jesus? Are you and I becoming light bringers in this lifetime? Are we becoming more like the unnamed man? Recognizing Jesus little by little, more and more, open to the invitation for his life to be completely altered because of his encounter with Jesus. Are you and I becoming invitation takers? Are we becoming more like Jesus? Are we becoming more like the man? Are we becoming more like the man's parents? Afraid. Paralyzed by the fear of what the Pharisees would do to them if they claimed Jesus as the Messiah, light of the world, are we becoming more paralyzed by the fear that exists in this world? Are we becoming fear dwellers? Or are we becoming more like the Pharisees, claiming sight but are blind, unable to recognize Jesus or the miracle because of their preoccupation with the violation of their traditions? Who made the mud? It doesn't matter that the whole man's life has been renewed. We want to find out who made the mud. So are we becoming fear mongers? Are we becoming light bringers, invitation takers, fear dwellers, or people who actually continue to instill fear in others because of our preoccupation with traditions? I love this man's movement throughout this entire narrative. If you caught it, each time he retold his story, it was shortened. He abbreviates it. On the other hand, each time he's asked about Jesus, his insight increases. It goes from this man named Jesus to, I think he's a prophet, to at the end of this narrative saying, Lord, and falling down and worshiping him. I love his progression. I love watching his obedience and his courage and his open-mindedness. His willingness to testify and take risks. And here's what I'll say as we kind of begin to close this out. I still believe that Jesus opens eyes. Did you hear me? I still believe that Jesus opens eyes. Why is it so ridiculous for us to even ponder that? I still believe that Jesus opens eyes. He opened the eyes of this man's heart. There is no telling how many people are impacted by this life change in this man, which goes back to the very beginning. This happened so that the opportunities could exist for God's work to be highlighted. 
I don't have any idea how many more lives were changed after this man because I think that they still are being changed because of this man. And so just some statements. God is at work in this world all around us. God is at work in this community, and there are opportunities all around us. So, will we recognize God at work? Will we recognize the opportunities for the glory of God to be revealed? Will we have the courage to participate and partner with Jesus? Maybe today... Maybe today, maybe our eyes will be opened just a little bit more to the possibilities all around us. Maybe this week we'll recognize the true light that's right before us. Maybe this month we'll commit to being light bringers and invitation takers. Maybe that'll be part of the rhythm that we begin to live life as, light bringers and invitation takers. Maybe even more than that, we'll reject fear and those who foster it. And so the invitation is really simple, yet challenging, right? Will you and I, or others who are hearing this, allow Jesus to open our eyes? Will we consider our own condition? Who are we becoming more like? Who are you becoming more like? We do leave space in these times to offer a formal invitation. Blake and I and others are pretty fond of saying we can't possibly know where everybody is. Even the people that we do know well, right? Even as well as you might know me. uh, We don't always know where everyone is on their journey. And we always want to leave space for that journey to be increased and for that journey to be more fully understood. You may be someone who's hearing this that's not even in this building. Maybe maybe you are in here. Maybe you are recognizing Jesus for the first time. And one of those things happens to be a, a public confession for who he is. And you want to be baptized into him. That is awesome. And maybe you're somebody who is recognizing Jesus just a little more deeper in your life right now. And it's not so much that you need to be baptized into him because you already have. But maybe it's you're saying... Man, I I think I want to be open more to what this means in my world, and I just need prayers for that. And maybe you're simply here this morning because you need prayers in general just for the way life is, is wreaking havoc on you. Maybe it's a blessing that may be wonderful, whatever it may be. Um, maybe we could attend to you as we come and stand and sing.